North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. We're here to present the results of my administration's missile defense review. Our goal is simple, to ensure that we can detect and destroy any missile launched against the United States anywhere, anytime, any place. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. We currently assess that North Korea will seek to retain its WMD capabilities and is unlikely to completely give up its nuclear weapons and production capabilities. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. On this episode of The Impossible State, we welcome Tom Carrico, a senior fellow with the International Security Program and director of the Missile Defense Project at CSIS. Tom wrote about the Trump administration's recent missile defense review, where North Korea played a big role. Plus, the annual worldwide threat assessment was released earlier this week. It concluded that North Korea is unlikely to give up its nuclear stockpiles. And President Trump is expected to meet with Kim Jong-un next month to talk about all of this. CSIS's top Korea expert, Victor Cha, joins Tom and me to discuss where U.S. policy on North Korea is headed. Victor, Tom, yesterday, all the intel chiefs go up on the Hill before the Senate Intel Committee, and they contradict everything President Trump has been saying about North Korea. They contradict what our research has been showing. What's the big takeaway here? What do you guys make of all this? Well, I mean, a couple of things. The first is that, you know, this these are independent assessments by the intelligence community. All of the intelligence community. All of the community. intelligence community yeah. uh, with regard to their assessment of whether North Korea is really willing to give up their nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles? And their answer is no, they don't think they are. Um, And our reports um, with regard to the missile bases have been essentially showing that, you know, aside from the things that North Korea doesn't need anymore, which are things that it's willing to give up, there are at least 20 of these operational missile bases, um, which Tom's missile threat program has also shown, that the North Koreans are not putting on the table for negotiation. And those are the real threats. Those are operational real threats. And what, what do you think about it, Tom? You know, I think uh, they've kind of gotten themselves with the ICBM tests of the past couple of years. They got themselves to a good negotiating position, and so right now uh, they're they're doing their best to string us along uh, and uh, play this game. It's a gamble. It's a gamble on our part. Uh, it's hard not to want to pursue this this bright shiny object, uh, but I sure hope we don't get taken uh, for too a ride. And more importantly, I hope we don't pay too high a price, well, especially what, for something that may not turn out to be anything. What, what's the gamble and what's the price? Well, the gamble is, of course, in the first sense, we lose, uh, that we lose momentum and then we lose pressure, uh, political pressure, uh, uh, a sense among our allies that we're serious about this. Uh, I like to say that you know, prior to the, this reproachment, it was the North Koreans that were putting the maximum pressure campaign on us. Uh, and it seems to have worked uh, because we seem to have blinked. And so, you know, I question the, the wisdom of the first uh, Singapore summit. Uh, I would question the wisdom of another one, uh, at least until we get something much more verifiable, like sending some nukes to France or something like that, but something very substantial. And I'm just not seeing it yet. But the president, Victor, thinks that it's going pretty well, even no. though as an intel chief said, you know, it's not going well. Our research has said it's not going the way it should be going. The president thinks it's going pretty well. No, he thinks it's just going swimmingly. I mean, he, <laughs> he, I mean, he's just so happy with where we are now. He's tweeting that this morning. He's tweeting that this morning. Here, here's the thing. I mean, as we approach this second summit, there is more pressure on him and arguably North Korea to really get some tangible results to come out of this summit. 
as Tom said, we just can't have another Singapore statement where there's a bunch of very lofty and ambiguous principles that the two agree on. They actually need to make progress this time. And if they don't make progress, then everybody's going to call it a failure. I think progress from a U.S. sort of policy perspective is the, the first and most important step, which is a full and verifiable declaration of all their capabilities. All of their capabilities. All of their capabilities, including the ones that we have been talking about in our missile reports. If there's anything short of that, then we're back in the same game that Tom's talking about, where they say, look, we'll give you this because we actually don't need it anymore, right? Right, they're we'll, giving us the stuff that's, they don't that's need it old. Anymore, right, they give us the stuff that's old or they give us promises about the future, which is not giving up anything. And in return, you know, this is the gamble. In return, they want sanctions lifting, they want... Uh, the suspension of U.S. military exercises. They may even want troops pulled off the peninsula. You know, they want real things for promises about the future or, or giving away stuff they don't need from the past. Why do they think, Tom, that we'll go for that? Why do they think that we, that we don't see right through that, that mm. we don't know this stuff's old, that mm. we don't? Why, why do they think that? I think the United States has proven itself susceptible to this kind of game repeatedly. Uh, and you that's know, what they know. And frankly, I, you know, perhaps they got a few hints from the Chinese. This reminds me of the 1990s when the Chinese were playing games with the Pakistanis. And, you know, they'd sign a piece of paper, carefully worded, and then turns out they interpreted it differently than we did or something like that. And, you know, time and again, our thirst for a piece of paper, for some kind of agreement, everybody wants a, a big wax-sealed treaty with ribbons kind of a, a moment. Um, our thirst for that is greater than than their uh, desire for disarmament. And so I think, unfortunately, we put ourselves up for this. Yes, the Trump administration seems to be betraying that kind of thing. We've seen it before, we've, but we've seen this movie before, and it always seems to end the same way. They don't like movies over there that we make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they've made pretty clear to Sony they don't like those. Yeah, last time <laughs> so we made a movie about the dear leader, it, it turned uh, it didn't go so well. No, no, it didn't. It didn't. Although they did like the vice uh, Dennis Rodman. So that was visits. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, that, 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 because that showed, you know, Rodman, the great, you know, facilitator of diplomacy between the United States and, and North Korea and basketball diplomacy. Yeah, I, and I think it was a dry run for meeting with Trump, right? You meet with Dennis Rodman. That's a dry run for meeting with Trump. <laughs> yeah. But look, you, you yeah. know, yes, the Rodman thing, I guess, was the precursor. But uh, I, I think once you let the North Koreans into the Olympics, once you do all this rapprochement, they get that, a degree of, of legitimacy. And it's harder to maintain the fire and fury. It's harder to maintain well, the and Kim Jong Un's a man about town. All that. Yeah. Kim yeah. Jong Un's a man about town now. Oh, yeah. He'll probably do a walkabout in Vietnam also. You know, mm. um, you know I, I agree with what Tom says. You know, from the negotiator's perspective, diplomacy is all about the art of the possible, right? It's not the art of the idea, it's the art of the possible. At the same time, though, when you're trying to you know, make headway, you have to maintain some sort of principles, right? You have to maintain some sort of principles. So leading up to this second summit, you know, to me, the principle is if we're really going to do denuclearization, we need the first step, which is the declaration. Now, if North Korea gives less than that, which it certainly sounds like they're going to, they may hand over this rocket test engine stand, right? Um, something they don't need anymore. Something they don't need anymore. Or the old five megawatt reactor at Yongbyon. That's... And that's when it's up to the president to say that's not enough. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, but that means the president has to be prepared. And if there's any message, policy message that comes out of these missile reports that we've been doing, it's this is literally rocket science, right? This is not easy stuff, and you've got to be prepared. And the North Koreans are not going to negotiate this at the working level. 
right? They feel like they can get the best deal by negotiating with the president. So the president has to be prepared for the second meeting. He can't just wing it. You know, he This isn't just it. a page out of the art of the deal. No, this isn't a page out of the art of the deal. And it's not like he said, uh, reportedly said to Prime Minister Abe before the first summit, which was that, you know, he can handle this. He doesn't need to prepare. He can just do it on the fly. This second summit is about actual results, so you just can't do it on the fly. He can't just make it up. The North Koreans have been preparing for 50 years for this meeting. I mean, I would just draw attention to the phone call with Erdogan uh, the other day. Uh, Trump's phone call with Trump's Erdogan. phone call with, with Erdogan and, uh, and Syria, and apparently there was a lot of prep for that, mm. uh, but they didn't stay on, uh, stay on message. Mm. Yeah. So, so, Tom, Victor points out how complex this is. Tell us about how complex it is. Like, what what does the president need to do to prepare for this second summit and really get what we want, as opposed to get their old junk? So I, I would say Victor pointed to, uh, you know, the working level uh, requirements, and actually, I think Pompeo has held out some pretty good gold standard. No kidding, you want you're serious about this? It has to be complete, verifiable, irreversible disarmament. That is the right standard. None of this, you know, just sort of freeze cap and freeze kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I think the, the the press has reported sending some stuff to France as a good faith measure. You know, that's been out there, been floated. What's happened? So it's about actually getting rid of their facilities, their material, their devices, weapons that they've produced, and the delivery systems and apparatus that goes with it. That's what, that's what the goal is. Anything short of that, and I think we are, uh, we're going to be jerked around. What do you expect to happen, Victor? So I think that um, the North Koreans won't, I don't think that they will give us a declaration. Uh, I think they will try to piecemeal it and give us some bright, shiny objects that could conceivably be held up as a victory because they would um, chip away at the ICBM, Homeland Security Threat, um, and they could be put up as things that no previous president has achieved, right? But in the broader scheme of things, it's just something that they don't need, right? And and the net is that we will not have made progress on denuclearization, and we will not really have diminished the security threat that's coming from the operational missile bases. So it could be some. It could be a bad deal where you know they give up this long-range rocket test stand, but then in return the president starts giving away things like he did in the first summit, suspending military exercises, or even talking about troops on the peninsula. The, these sorts of things. Even people who are in favor of a second summit going forward, I don't think there's anybody who isn't concerned that the president might be susceptible to a bad deal. Do you think that the North Koreans take this administration seriously? I think they take the administration seriously in the sense that they see this as a real opportunity. There's been no other president that has been willing to meet with the North Korean leader, yet Trump is willing to do that. Um, And I think they feel like, I mean, and Trump is. Trump is very decisive. He makes decisions on his own, regardless of what his people tell him. And um, it's very much in the moment. Right. So if he can, if the North Korean leader can catch Trump at the right time and get him to commit to something, I think that's that's what they're looking for. I think people like Steve Began, the special representative, Secretary Pompeo, have been trying very hard since the Singapore summit to make progress in terms of denuclearization, you know, really trying to get tangible steps. But the North Koreans have learned they don't need to talk to these people. They just want to talk to the leader because they think they can get a better deal from the leader. I think Victor put his, his finger on the kind of the impulse. You know, there's certain 
fundamental impulses that the president has demonstrated repeatedly. Uh, and uh, I think the potential uh, willingness to pull troops out of places such as Syria, such as that Erdogan call, uh, it would be a, a very unfortunate thing if the South Koreans or the Japanese got a whiff of that that impulse manifesting itself with some kind of troop uh, pullback from this very, very critical area of the world. Yeah, it's one thing to talk about pulling our troops out of Syria. It's another thing to talk about pulling our troops off the right. Korean Peninsula. Yeah. Yeah, because this is about all the marbles. You know, it's one thing to, for Syria, as you say, because yes, Russia's messing around there with Assad, but the national security strategy, top level issue, the national defense strategy, top level issue, the central challenge of our time is great power competition, and in particular, China. And if you're, you're not there, then they're going to be cleaning up. You're talking about the national security strategy written by this administration, right. this National Security Council That's staff. Right. That's right. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. There was just a missile review that was underway. What does that missile review mean for Russia, China, and the rogue states that we've been dealing with? Right. So the White House, of course, put out the national security strategy a little over a year and change ago. Then the Pentagon put out its national defense strategy under it. And the nuclear posture review and the missile defense review are nested under that review. And so what the missile defense review, or MDR, does is to take the big themes of those other policy statements and apply them to the particular area of missile defense. And what that means in this particular case is the big task of really pivoting or changing the overall U.S. missile defense posture for the past 20 plus years, which we've said it's all about North Korea and uh, Iran kind of thing and not about Russia and China. said, well, if your overall security strategy is now about Russia and China, then you're going to have to put those things in the same sentence in some way. And what I would say is that the review begins to do that. It opens the conversation at the level of policy, says, we are going to try to do this, not for ICBMs, but for regional missile threats from Russia and China. That's a good thing, but there's a lot more that needs to be done to actually implement that. What do you think is likely to happen in the coming year with the Congress and potential follow-on studies. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the review actually commissioned, I think, a, a dozen follow-on studies, uh, six-month and nine-month studies. So we will be hearing more about that uh, later this summer and fall, July and October. Uh, of course, a lot of attention went to the nuclear posture review. I think uh, especially the Democratic House will probably focus on that. But on the missile defense side, the remarkable thing is that in terms of programmatic movements, the muscle movements are very modest. I would say too modest. I would say that the review stops short of some of the no kidding integration and air defense type things that we're going to need to do to adapt our air and missile defense posture to the great power challenge. It says, hey, we want to do a lot more Aegis BMD ships. That's important for the Pacific. It says we want to do uh, kind of explore uh, boost phase uh, UAV kind of capabilities. That's important for North Korea. Uh, we explore some directed energy stuff. That's good. But it's going to take a lot more, a lot more kind of continuation of this, we're going to have to keep these things together. And that's going to be a, that's going to be a challenge. That's going to be a, a test of our commitment to this great power competition thing. How does this all fit in with North Korea specifically? So in two ways. One is that um, uh, the sort of advances in missile defense that Tom is talking about in terms of the review will at some point require cooperation with our allies in theater. Um, Japan has been very cooperative on missile defense. Um, South Korea has been a little bit more rocky uh, because, as some will remember, the emplacement of a THAAD battery on the Korean Peninsula created a great deal of pushback from China, 
right, and uh, economic coercion by China on the South Koreans, such that the South Koreans, even though they accepted the battery, are ambivalent about it, to say the least. So that's one. I mean, in terms of North Korea, I think personally that this is a great thing for the diplomacy because it shows that the United States, if they do the things that and follow through on on the things in the report, it shows that the United States is not, that the pressure in terms of their ability to threaten the United States and its allies with missiles is going to get harder and harder for them to do. So it will, it, it should push them to make a deal, you know, and to, and to move in the direction of denuclearization, economic reform, joining the international community of nations, rather than thinking they can hold this threat forever to try to extort things from the United States and its allies. Tom, is that the way you see it also? Yeah. You know, there's this one little line in the, in the Missile Defense Review that says, while there may be a, a path to peace uh, towards North Korea, comma, we have to hedge and <laughs> we're not sure that that's actually going to, that this disarmament stuff is going to happen. And then it proceeds to basically sketch out a, a continuation of a, of a defense and, and defeat posture relative to North Korea. But so, so that's good. It's a continuation of that capacity and capability uh, boost for North Korea. But then there's some new things like the ability to, or the desire to go after hypersonic glide vehicles. And that's not about North Korea. That's about China. Mm. And so it's in China's interest to find bright, shiny objects to distract us, uh, to try to dissuade us to be there. Uh, but in terms of the capability side, this is about protecting our carriers and our forward bases that are so important there so that we can continue to have that, that assurance, those strong alliance relationships and the projection of power for everything it is the United States wants to do and countering these new kinds of missile threats, especially from Russia and China, are a piece of that equation. And the wild card in all this related to North Korea is that while the U.S. government is moving in the direction of a strategy and a plan for being able to counter Russia and China in terms of these missile, th- missile threats, the wild card is this North Korea negotiation because you know, we could come out of a second summit and out of the first summit, he suspended exercises. And so we haven't had exercises on the Korean Peninsula now um, in in uh, half a year or more right. than half a year. And we usually do them quarterly? We Well, we usually two big two, ones two a year. Two big ones a year, but there are lots of smaller ones. Right. And eventually that starts to affect readiness capabilities. But the other is that he may come out of the second summit and say something about forward basing or say something about troops on the Korean Peninsula, which would then undercut all the work that is a part of this strategy to counter China and Russia, which goes back to, you know, some of our first principles of negotiation, which is that, you know, in negotiating with North Korea, you can never allow what you want to do in the negotiation to undercut your overall position in Asia, right? And, you know, and the danger when you're not prepared and you're not briefed up and prepared for this meeting is that you could do that. And so, you know, this is the thing I think people worry about. And that's exactly what China is, you know, rubbing its hands gleefully and hoping that Absolutely. that happens. Yeah. So if you both had to predict what's going to happen, and I won't ask you for your Super Bowl predictions because since the Saints are not in it, I don't even want to talk about <laughs> the Super Bowl. But let, let's let, if you had to predict what's going to happen here in the next round of talks with missiles and all the declarations need to happen. Victor, what do you think? And Tom, I want to know what you think too. So I think there will be some piecemeal concessions by North Korea, most likely on things that they assess that they no longer need anymore. The wild card is I don't know what we're going to give for those things. I don't know what the president will give up for those things. You know, a a, a sort of incremental lifting of sanctions, that's fine. 
right? That's fine. But if he gives up more than that, then I think, you know, he is getting a bad deal. You know, uh, my prediction would be, it's kind of boring, that is, no matter what happens, Kim's probably going to walk away with greater credibility and greater normalcy, and it's going to be even harder to uh, kind of sustain the political pressure uh, to to reassert, you know, back when the JCPOA was was being concluded, we said, "Don't worry, yeah, right, we can yeah. always we can mm-hmm. always snap the sanctions back into place." Well, nothing snaps back into place once you just stretch the rubber band out. It's you can't snap it back into place. And so, even if we don't give anything super substantial, uh, I see Kim just getting lots more uh, inertia on his side, and it's going to be harder and harder. Now, I don't think the, the president rolled out the missile defense review. I don't think he wants he's in the he wants to be in the mantle of Reagan on this issue. I don't think. I don't expect him to, to give any concessions on that, but it's really the overall picture. And Vic, I want to point to Victor's testimony, I think, from last summer when this was going on. He said, you know, it's all about what price you're willing to pay. And the this price- your testimony the, for the Senate committee. Mm-hmm. Was, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was about what the price you're willing to pay for this. And there, we, we ought to walk into this negotiation with an understanding of what is the price that is too high to pay? What is the price that we would say, no, keep your nuclear weapons, we're not going to pay that. And I would say that the answer to that is going to have to align with what the national security strategy and what the national defense strategy says. Right. That's the way it should be done. Right? It should be done that way and sort of internally in agreement on what price we're not willing to pay, as well as coordinated with our allies, what price we're not willing to pay. But, you know, this is far from sort of regular negotiation. It feels like we're, we're getting a lot of symbolism from them and we're legitimizing him, but we're not getting much in return. I think, yes. I mean, for the North Koreans, this negotiation is as much about internal domestic politics as it is about the United States. I mean, North Korea has always wanted to sit at the same table with the United States. No previous North Korean leader has really had that opportunity. Um, And this young fellow, you know, who came to power accidentally after his father had a massive stroke, needed to do a lot to legitimize his domestic position. And and these meetings, whether it's a summit with Trump, whether it's the four meetings with Xi Jinping, the three with the South Korean leader, a Singaporean prime minister, a Putin meeting should drop at some point. Uh, soon, um, you know, he is really sort of cementing his position. So that that's important. That's important for them. And he's going to have a wall of photos that his <laughs> father and his grandfather didn't have. That's right. He's going to yeah, and and uh, he'll have a special, you know, place in the mausoleum for all the gifts from all the, all these <laughs> leaders. Um, we have to understand that their game is to negotiate either things away things they don't want anymore or don't need anymore or promises about the future things they won't do in the future meanwhile they're trying to get things from us that they're are all real. about the present that are all real right and so this is the trap the president has to avoid and there are others in town who say well it's still good enough because it's incremental progress and the negotiations then don't falter but that's a rabbit hole that you can go down and, you know, in the end, with each summit, we'll get less and less and they'll get more and more. And the end result will be they will be accepted as a nuclear weapon state, which if anybody doesn't think that's true, just look at Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech mm. this year, which which actually spurred this second round of diplomacy. In his New Year's speech, he makes very clear that North Korea is willing to cap fissile material production and is willing not to transfer which is essentially saying accept us as a responsible nuclear weapons. State. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think the domestic uh, legitimacy is one thing, but it's the longer this goes on, the more the symbolism, back to the question, the more the symbolism and the acceptance of this is, first of all, with our allies in the region, uh, but also with the American public. Uh, you know, a couple years ago, uh, every time they'd launch a missile, uh, the news agency, everybody would be all a flutter. 
uh, every time. They they had the attention of the American public. Big news story here. Yeah. It's one of the few foreign policy stories, and, national security stories, that can actually break through uh, our political coverage. Yeah, and I, I would tell the reporters sometimes, you know, look, don't you think you're, you're maybe playing into their hands by dramatizing this so yeah. much? I know you want the clicks and all that, but... Uh, I just don't think it's good. And so the, now the United States is like, everybody's kind of going to get used to it. They're not so scary anymore. And they're, we're kind of used to that situation. It's that normalization, legitimacy. And that's a, that's a robust thing that they are acquiring. It's a very unusual situation where, you know, your negotiators like Secretary Pompeo and others are trying to make real progress holding to principles, maximum pressure on sanctions, denuclearization. And you're supposed to be doing it for your president, but then your president is out there saying, oh, there's no threat. We, could, we have plenty of time. Um, the nuclear threat is gone. I mean, it's difficult to negotiate under those sorts of conditions. Well, the other thing is, you know, when Singapore happened, our allies in Japan and Australia, <laughs> a lot of people were just absolutely floored and flabbergasted. What does this mean? And if Abe's the, Golden Golf Club didn't look so good anymore, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if the United States is able to be back to Turkey and, and the Erdogan call, back to these summits, if we're able to be knocked off our position so easily, if we're able to be flattered or, or cajoled off our position so easily, what does that mean for them? Uh, you know, back in the Obama administration, what was the thing? The red line, you know, and that had global implications because at the end, uh, fundamentally it was about the word and the honor of the United States. We said something and, and we, we did something different. And at the end of the day, it's not just about a particular threat or a particular thing that glows in the dark, but it's about what is the the credibility of the United States to do what it says it's going to do. Yeah. And I so that's why this summit, you know, if it happens in the end of February, is something that the whole world is going to be watching, not just as a spectacle, because it'll be a spectacle, but they're watching for it because it messages a lot about U.S. credibility. I mean, if we come out of that summit meeting, for example, and Trump says, I've dealt with the ICBM threat, so the homeland threat, so I'm done, then what does that mean for extended deterrence for all of our allies, not just in Asia, but what allies in NATO are thinking about, you know, or other places, if... We are willing simply to say, we've gotten rid of our threat. You deal with your own threat. And on top of that, this is the only place right now where the United States is actually trying to do diplomacy. Right. right. I mean, we're, this we're, is the focus of our government. This is the focus of our government. And I mean, yes, you know, we're, we're in trade disputes with other places, but this is the only place where we're actually trying to take a conflictual situation and find a negotiated diplomatic solution. So... Everybody is going to be watching this, again, not just for the spectacle, but for what it's saying about the United States. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.